Welcome to episode 156 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane, your amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? Oh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I love this time of the year, as we've talked about lots. It's uh, nice when the temperatures, like the hot temperatures, start to go away, and the sun starts to set a little earlier. It's, it's a nice time for astronomy. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's been, uh, it's been good, uh, weather wise, mostly during the day, but the, the overnights haven't been as, uh, as good as I, I think we're hoping to have. <laughs> yeah. The original forecast was looking really good for the week. Like that was going to be clear, but, um, it really wasn't. And the little bit of observing I did, the seeing just wasn't very good. Yeah. And like Friday night, um, like it had been pretty good all day and then some cloud moved in and then, uh, you know, I talked to Mike and debated whether he would come out or not. And then, you know, this big cloud deck moved in and I said, yeah, forget about it. And then that cleared out. So I set up right at sunset and it was totally clear, went for like a 20 minute walk. And by the time we got back, the sky was like 80% covered and, you know, I had the scope up. So I went up and, and I observed for like 40 minutes, but basically I was just uh, messing with with the mount. We'll talk more about that. But I I could only see Arcturus. That was it. I, maybe a few other stars, but I couldn't even see Jupiter and Saturn. They were completely uh, obscured. <laughs> oh wow! No, I so Friday night, yeah, like the cloud moved in and and it wasn't great. But um, I was able to observe Jupiter and Saturn for probably about an hour, hour and a half before the cloud just became too annoying. You know, yeah. ducking. Ducking between sucker holes but with the two planets uh, worked for a little while, but then it just thickened up. And uh, I think it cleared later on in, in the night, but I was I was in bed. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I got to get one of those uh, clear sky clocks or dark sky clocks for, for this area because uh, I, it's, it's in a slightly different system here. Like I know there's been nights where, where it's been cloudy in Regina and I can see back towards the city. And there's some nights and, and even one morning when I drove into work, um, you know, it was totally cloudy in Regina and you would just see it sort of a bit clear in the north, whereas here it was just sort of a bit cloudy and in the direction of the city. So um, sometimes it can be completely clear, almost like 80% clear here and Regina is 80% cloudy. And then I guess on Friday, it sounds like the reverse was true. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, that is weird, but... It was, it was still nice to get out, even though the seeing wasn't very good. Um, I was able to play around and see a few cool things. Yeah. What'd you look at? Yeah. Um, on Jupiter, the, uh, well, I guess maybe to, to, to start it off, the reason too, why I was so motivated to go out Friday night was, uh, my Bino viewer package arrived and, uh, I really wanted to test that out and, see if I could accomplish focus um, because binal viewers change the length of your light path and, and reaching focus can be uh, a challenge, especially in, well, well, in any telescope, probably other than Cassegrain's. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the binal viewer that I got is a, a Dankmeyer two deep sky. Uh, so it's a little bit older and I wasn't familiar actually with all of the components. It comes with two optical correction lenses, which are basically like kind of Barlow's and I, like one is like a Barlow. And then I'm not sure if the other one's a reducer or not. Um, but I, I wasn't quite clear on, you know, what order to use them. Like one goes on the bino viewer, one goes on the front of the diagonal. Mm. Um, 
And what was really strange, so, I, you know, I, I was playing around Friday night and eventually I got it. Um, but what was really strange was I had to actually add some adapters to my light path to increase the length of the light path. Um, now without the adapters, the light path, um, was, was way too long. Like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't achieve focus. Um, or I should say it was not short enough. Um, anyway, um, with all of the adapters in place, I finally got it working and, um, I learned a little bit more, even though I've bino viewed in the past, um, what I found was so like I, I started with the 24 millimeter pan optics and the view was really quite nice. Um, just mm -hmm. looking at some star fields and again, being able to use two eyes as, as opposed to one was, was just quite nice, you know, very comfortable, very relaxing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I wanted like the purpose of these vinyl viewers is really for me to test like some comp or, um, simpler eyepieces like orthoscopics and maybe my TMB super monos and, um, you know, just see what they're able to do. Like if, uh, um, you know, if they're able to pull in a little bit more light, um, and maybe the vinyl viewers could be used for uh, deep sky observing, even with my small refractor. And, um, what I found interesting, and I remember reading, but I, I forgot about this aspect is with a bino viewer, um, like there's some people have issues merging the two images, you know, like you'll, you'll see double through a bino viewer. And for some people, that's just the way it is and they can't use them. Um, yeah. and typically they'll also struggle a bit with binoculars, uh, in merging the images as well. Um, I never have issues with binoculars and, um, when I final viewed in the past, I was able to merge images, uh, quite easily. Um, but if you can't, sometimes that is also a sign of collimation issues within the bino viewer. Um, so anyway, panoptic, the image was fine. But when I went down to the 18 millimeter ortho, I struggled a bit to merge the images, although I could. Um, and then when I went to a 12 millimeter ortho, I couldn't merge the images. Like it, I was seeing double and it was very annoying. And I was wondering if, you know, it was a collimation issue because, you know, I, I assume that as you increase magnification, if there is a, an alignment problem, it'll just become worse with more magnification, which is why I thought, you know, I didn't see it at 24 millimeter, but now I'm seeing it at 12. And, um, I think what it was is like your eye placement has to be pretty precise with some eyepieces. And, you know, if you don't have, um, the, like the spacing of the two eyepieces just right for your eyeballs so that you're kind of looking down the, the center, uh, you can run into some of this seeing double. Yeah. And, um, how I discovered that that was the case was I took out the, so I, it was 12 and a half millimeter orthos. I took those out. And with this vinyl viewer package, I received uh, two 13 millimeter uh, T6 Naglers. So I thought I'd put those in just to see what the view was like. And it was no problem to merge the images with the 13 millimeter Naglers, um, which are a little more forgiving with the eye placement compared to the orthos. Yeah. Um, so that was a pretty cool discovery. And, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to try orthos again. It just means that next time, um, I use the bino viewer with the orthos, I'm going to spend a little more time with the eye placement and like, uh, like the IPD kind of adjustment, I guess, of the, uh, bino viewer. Yeah. Um, but anyway, all of that kind of technical garbage in the background. Now, um, let's just talk about 
what it looked like. And um, so we already talked about how Friday night, the seeing was not very good. And, and that is 100% true. Um, but I was very, very impressed with my first run with the Bino viewers and what they did for me. Um, so basically what I did is I stuck with the 13 millimeter Naglers in there and went back and forth between Jupiter and Saturn. Um, Saturn was awesome. Uh, you know, I was able to clearly see the uh, shadow that the disc casts and um, mm -hmm. the Cassini division was there, although that was kind of fleeting because of the seeing. And um, uh, there wasn't a lot to be seen on the disc itself. Again, I, I think the seeing just washed out some of those subtleties. Um, but anyway, going over mm -hmm. to Jupiter, um, I was able to see both of the uh, polar regions, uh, both of mm -hmm. the equatorial bands, and like within the northern equatorial band, I was able to see quite a bit of detail, uh, and it shocked me because of how bad the seeing was. Now, yeah. and and the color too, like there's like real color variations within that northern equatorial band, uh, which was pretty cool. But here's here's what like really kind of surprised me. And um, so I what I did is I just closed one eye when I was looking through the Bino viewer just to see, you know, what does one eye look like? Because it's pretty close to, you know, what, what it would look like if I just had one of those 13 millimeter Naglers in there. And when I went one eye, like I really couldn't see the polar regions anymore. Like they were subtle with two eyes, um, but I couldn't pick it out with one eye. Um, and even the Southern equatorial band would sort of come in and out just with one eye observing. Um, and as soon as I opened up my other eye, it was like, boom, you know, Jupiter just came back, you know, like the detail came out and it was almost like, um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to make a claim that it improved the bad seeing, but you know, it allowed me to, I think, see a little bit more through it or at least pull in some more of the detail. Now, this was like, uh, you know, by the time I got done messing around with all, all of the adapters and trying to reach focus, um, you know, I probably only observed for maybe 45 minutes or so would be my guess. Yeah. So like, I need to do this a lot more before I come to any concrete conclusions, but uh, certainly was really pleased with uh, round one. I thought it performed quite well. And, uh, and those Naglers actually really, really surprised me with how good they are. Um, you know, I've read that the 13 millimeter Naglers are, are quite wonderful. Um, and I was a little worried about the tight eye relief at 13 millimeters or 12 millimeters, whatever it is. Um, but it, it really didn't bother me too much. Like, yeah, you know, I did lose a little bit of the field, but not a lot because like, I think with the, um, with the adapters that were in the focal plane to achieve focus with the Bino viewer, um, you know, some of those, like it's basically barlowing and, and barlowing increases your um, eye relief a little bit on the eyepieces. And I think maybe that was at play here um, as well. So I should probably try the Naglers, I guess, just mono viewing to see how comfortable they are. But I was really impressed with the sharpness and the clarity uh, of those eyepieces. And, and again, the wide field at, 84 degrees or whatever they are uh was was really nice to take in yeah sounds good yeah sounds good. cool so what's your what, what's your uh, next moves with it are you still planning to buy like a like a brand new one or are you going to kind of put that on pause and just use this one or have you made up your mind in that direction yet? uh what, what did you say at the start of that i, I didn't really understand that the... oh i just just wondered if you're gonna if you're still planning to buy a new one because i think you have one on order yeah. yeah, I do have one on order. 
Um, I, I think I'll just keep on the waiting list for now um, and make my decision. One, one negative, um, maybe two negatives with this current setup is um, uh, it is a heavy bino viewer. Like the newer Max Brights are uh, uh, lighter. I'm not, I, I, I need to look up how much lighter. I, I think it might be significant. Um, so if I can lighten up the back, that would be really nice. Um, because I did have to use a, a counterbalance for this. Um, and then the other thing with the dank, uh, the dank mire that I have, I have to use a two inch diagonal with it. And, um, you know, again, that just adds a lot more weight. And with the max bright, I know that I could use my, my inch and a quarter prism that I have. And, um, uh, you know, that would be substantially lighter on the back end. So I still have an interest in the max bright. Um, so if one comes through at some point, I may end up with two bino viewers and then decide which one I really want and sell the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds promising. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to keep doing it from the backyard. And then I, you know, part of this experiment also is taking it to some dark skies and uh, just see how they do there uh, as well. So um, it would be really cool actually, if, if I could time it uh, to come out to your place when Mike is out there. And if Mike, you know, brings his 76, it'd be really neat to compare mono viewing, you know, through his 76 and then bino viewing through my 76 and just see how different some objects look. Yeah. Yeah. That would be uh yeah, that would be neat. It would be neat to uh, just just a view through it anyway. Yeah, I I would almost be tempted to get it like a like a used eight inch Schmidt Cassegrain and and play with it on that as well. Like just that would be my own my own take on it because uh, having used them in in the Schmidt Cassegrains, I was really surprised at uh, at how good they perform there too. But yeah, you probably already have enough scopes. Yeah, I, I have thought about that a little bit, like a Cassegrain or a Max Sudov. Um, yeah, somewhere in that eight inch range, um, cause more aperture definitely would help a bino viewer. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got enough telescopes and, um, I just don't want to add another one right now. So maybe, maybe at some point in the future, but, uh, for now I can play around with this, with the, with the telescopes that I have and just see how I like it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So you've got a couple new sets of eyepieces with the two. I think you said you get, um, was it a set of 24s and, and 13s? Is that what came with it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I have, yeah, that's what came with it. A set of 24 millimeter panoptics and then a, a set of 13 millimeter naglers. Um, and then I have a number of orthos that I uh, have pairs of, um, like eight, 25 millimeter, 18, 12 and a half, and nine. Um, and then I have other pairs too. I have a couple of my uh, TMB Super Monos paired now, and I have a pair of those uh, Pentex SMC uh, XFs, uh, the yeah. eight and a half millimeters. Um, nice. So yeah, I have a lot of eyepieces right now <laughs> and not all of them are needed. So um, I really want to play around like the, just using this vinyl viewer will be what I'm doing now for the foreseeable future. Um, because if I love it, awesome, you know, I'll keep doing it. Um, but if I don't enjoy it as much as mono viewing and I don't see myself using it, then I, you know, I guess I'll probably have a lot of gear that will be appearing for sale at some point, but that won't happen anytime soon. Um, I have a lot of, uh, you know, testing and evaluating to do. Um, the last time that I had a bino viewer, I regret not using it enough or more. And then I just sold it, uh, without really, you know, learning to, to see if I liked it or not. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm really eager to, 
to look through it. Um, I think they're, they're pretty cool, uh, pretty cool devices. Um, but again, like, uh, you know, it has to kind of work in the field over a period of time in order to see if it's something that you want to, you want to mess with every time you bring it out. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it, it does add a little bit more to like the, you know, what we've always talked about or, or the futz factor, <laughs> you know, because yeah. you're not just changing one eyepiece, you're changing two every time. Um, and then there is a little bit of the diopter focus that you have to deal with, uh, as well, but, you know, usually once you set that, you don't have to worry about it. Um, although your as your eye fatigues, in, you know, during the course of an evening, sometimes you do need to adjust that just slightly. So yep. there's a little bit more messing around and obviously just more gear to take to the observing site. Um, cause it's not just an eyepiece case anymore. It's twice as many eyepieces and it's the bino viewer on top of that. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I also have to counterbalance this thing because of how heavy the back end is. So that also means I'm using a heavier mount. Like I was using my Sky T mount. And uh, I, I tweeted a photo out if anybody's interested in the setup. But um, this, one of the neat things with that Sky T mount is where you would mount the second telescope, you can screw in a, a, like a counterweight balance bar. And then you can also rotate that bar so you know you can position it however you need to for optimum observing. So um, it worked really well. It's just, it's a little bit more, you know, to my observing routine now. Well, I, I got to say we, we got together and did a short session on uh, Monday night. Yeah. 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 You came over and we, uh, we performed some surgery or attempted surgery on your uh, Skywatcher AZ GTI, which we'll probably talk about in a minute, but um after that, we went into the backyard and I had the, what did I have? The 76 and the, the 50 FL mounted. And we took a look at a few things. We, uh, again, seeing was, was not great. So we looked at Jupiter and Saturn quickly, but we, we did not spend much time there. Um, what do we look at? The double cluster M31. Yeah. Um, I think there was something else there too, but yeah, those were kind of the, the highlights, those four or five things. And yeah, you know, I, I gotta say that Sky Team mount, I'm super impressed with that. I really like that mount. Uh, well, the the mount that I had in the backyard was actually the Burlaback caster. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought that was the Sky T that night. No, the Sky T was in the garage uh, when we were doing surgery, but um, no, that was the Burlaback. Like that little mount is really, really good. You know, I think I'm to handle those. Sorry. I'm surprised it can hold both those because those aren't, I mean, they're fairly light telescopes, but once you, once you're throwing a three inch and a 50 millimeter full telescope and some eyepieces in that, like it's not, it's not really light. I'm surprised that wasn't the sky team. Yeah. And that's also a pretty lightweight tripod. Like that is that old Manfrotto tripod, like the 3046 or whatever you and I both basically, yep. I think have the same one. Um, yeah, it, it really does well. Um, I'm like, I love that little mount. It, uh, it, <laughs> I love the versatility of being able to put a second telescope on there if I want, and it, you know, it can handle the weight of either. So, and, and it's just pretty smooth operation. Um, yeah. very smooth. Yeah. Very smooth. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. That is, uh, that's a sweet little setup, you know, and you think about having two telescopes talking about butts factor, but for, for some reason that setup doesn't seem like a lot of futz factor. Like when your telescopes are that small, light and portable on small, light and portable, uh, mounts and tripods like that, it's, um, 
it's a pretty nice setup just just for observing and uh, man those views through that 50 fl they are they are shockingly good i can't believe how good that little scope is yeah and and that so normally i just have the 76 on that mount and to your point just throwing the 50 on there really doesn't change it in any way it's not you know no. i'm probably adding a couple of pounds you know it's not a big deal to carry that out um, but what I really wanted to do, um, was just to have, um, some looks through both telescopes to compare, you know, the difference between a 50 and a 76. And unfortunately your, your curse, your gear curse hit me that night. So the 76 was not really operable for most of that session. <laughs> right after uh, I touched it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't want you to come over again, actually. <laughs> I kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what had happened is I have that Takahashi uh, MEF uh, dual speed, I guess, modification on the focuser. And um, so it has like two grub screws that uh, attach the two speed focus wheel onto the focuser shaft. And those had just come loose. So it was spinning freely. Uh, So I just tightened them up after uh, like the next day and it's fine. But yep. basically we lost the ability to, to advance the focuser. So we, we had a little bit of viewing, um, but yeah, it wasn't quite the strong comparison that I wanted to do, but man, you know, M31 from the city uh, through the 50 millimeter was, was, you know, it's not going to compare to anything under a dark sky with aperture, but it, it kind of surprised me actually the extent that we were able to see it. Yeah. Um, I, I was surprised too. Cause you think about, you know, being able to hunt it down in a pair of binoculars is, is doable from the city with, with a little bit of patience, but, uh, just to see it through a mono 50 millimeter is, uh, and, and to see sort of that extension around it, like you, you could kind of have a pretty good view of it. Um, I was surprised. I thought it was pretty, pretty good. Cause you're sort of looking over the worst, um, part of your sky when you're viewing that as well, I think. So that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That looking in that direction is a lot of light pollution. Cause there's a car dealership over there. There's a Walmart, you know, there's, there's a city, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. what did you think of the, uh, the 40 millimeter Kellner? Did you have uh, much opportunity to really. Oh, that's a nice eyepiece. I was, yeah. I was surprised how good that was. I I'd like to get one now to be. Yeah. Yeah. Add that I, to the list. I, I, yeah, I, I want to keep using that more. Like I I've used that one exclusively from the city. I haven't tried it under dark sky yet, but every time I put that in, um, I'm, I'm quite pleased with it. And I, I love how light it is. Like I didn't, I don't know if you had it in your hand out of the focuser, no. but like if it was in your hand, you wouldn't even know, like it is so light. There's nothing to it. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to try that in, uh, in my four inch and, uh, cause that would give a nice exit people and, uh, what's the field of view? Is it just like a 50 degree field or what, what's the field of view on that? Oh, I need to double check. I believe it's 45 degrees on that okay. one. Yeah. 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 I, I think the, it would still the, frame things. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Like I think at 40 millimeters, like you're getting the same field of view. I think that like the 24 millimeter panoptic would provide, you know, it's about as wide as it gets an inch and a quarter. Oh, okay. um, that makes now, sense. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. And, and I, you know, it might even, the inch and a quarter might actually chop some of the field on that. I'm not sure. Cause, um, it, it's one of those weird eye pieces that I think the original nose piece on that was like one and a half inch. Like it's just weird. And, um, 
uh, I do have a two inch adapter that I can put on there, but it just seems silly, you know, to put a, a two inch nose on a 45 degree, 40 millimeter eyepiece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice eyepiece though. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it, but, uh, yeah, thanks for taking a look at my mount. You know, we can kind of report back a bit on, on that, uh, mm -hmm. if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's see. So maybe, maybe I'll, I'll backpedal here a bit so that we can explain the, the issue I had. I have a Skywatcher AZ GTI. I've had it for one year and three weeks. And one year and one day after I bought it, Shane and I were observing uh, my dark sky site. We were doing about a, was that like about a three hour session or something? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think it was about yeah two, three hours we were out there. Yeah. It was a nice anyway, session. About halfway through, like about an hour and a half in, maybe just over halfway mark. Um, you know, the mount had worked beautifully for a year. And uh, about halfway through, I mentioned to Shane that it seemed like I was getting some jitter or something like that. And I thought, well, maybe the batteries are running down or something like that. And then about five minutes after that, I slewed and the telescope started acting or the mount started acting like uh, I'd suddenly put like a massive load on it. Um, it was creaking and groaning and all that. So I, I turned it off and thought, well, I'll, I'll investigate it. Maybe, maybe the telescope shifted and uh, it was out of balance or something like that. So I thought, well, I won't, I won't stress it. So um, I kind of just lightly used it for, for the rest of the session without any power and just, just using the, uh, like I have uh, uh, like a, what do you call it? An azimuth head on the tripod. So I can actually use the, uh, the mount without actually using the gears um, in a Zemeth. I can just kind of pan around and go up and down without, without messing with those, those gears. So I felt pretty safe and secure that I wasn't doing anything to it. And then uh, when I got it home and powered it up using an AC adapter, uh, even without a scope or anything on it, it still continued to make this heavy load sound, just like, just seemed like it was just like got a massive load on that. So, uh, so took it over to Shane's and we opened it up and I was kind of disappointed at what we saw inside that, uh, that Skywatcher mount. I don't know what your thoughts were. Yeah. You know, it, um, yeah, it was disappointing. So, you know, we, um, we opened it up and it's pretty easy to get into it. It's, you know, you take some screws out and, and you're in there. Um, but, uh, I guess the, the first thing that sort of came out of it was there definitely were some like metal, wasn't even really shavings. Like it was chunks of metal, like kind of in the gears. And I'm not sure where that came from. Um, like there was definitely some kind of like, uh, I guess almost wear marks in the metal, but I think that was like just for manufacturing, like when they were fitting everything together, um, yeah. I just don't think it got a good bath or clean after all of the machining was done. You know, I think it was drilled out and all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, built and, and just some remnants of, of like the fabrication were left in there. So yeah. I think we removed three or four, like decent, you know, and by decent, I, you know, I don't know, half a millimeter sort of chunks of, uh, of metal. Um, there might even still be some more in there. Probably what should happen is, is taking it apart, degreasing it. And then, uh, you know, that'll get rid of anything else that might be living in there and then, and then regrease it. Yeah, um, I'd read that there was like metal filings and some pretty large ones, but uh, you know, like when when we we didn't even take it all apart, we just kind of were exploring to see where this this um, vibration or or sort of 
you know, maybe gearing issue had, was was coming from. And so we really just opened it up and right away we were seeing big chunks of metal in there that, like you said, are more than just like, uh, like filings, right? And honestly, any one of those chunks in the wrong spot would, could cause um, pretty significant issues for a mount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it, it, it definitely would. Like especially some of those smaller gears um, that that oh, are in yeah. there, they would have they would have caused some havoc. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is disappointing because it's not cheap, and and if if it wasn't cheap and the mount just didn't work well, then that'd be one thing. But I really like the mount; they're beautiful little mounts, and so it's just kind of unfortunate that they've left all these chunks in there. And and it's not just me. Like reading online, I had read this, and I had kind of hoped that maybe. Um, well, and it did. I think it did improve things just by simply because I think we just used like the head of a magnetic screwdriver and we removed, like you said, three or four of these. And to be honest, after that, I took it out and tried it and it's better. It just seems a little bit like loose or something like, and, and from time to time, I still do hear that, uh, that loading, but uh, I think definitely one of those chunks was in, was in a bad spot. So um, that's, that's just kind of disappointing when it's, when it's nothing to do with, my use of the mount, I certainly haven't overloaded it. I mean, you've seen how I use it. I, I use it with, uh, with about eight or nine pounds of gear and it has, a, I think a 12 or 13 pound capacity, whatever, but I'm, I'm under, under the weight limit on it. I don't use it heavily. I'm pretty careful with my gear. I probably used it, you know, uh, maybe 40 times or something like that in a year, or maybe 50. And I have other mounts that I use from time to time. So it's not my only, only mount. So it's not just getting taxed and, uh, you know, I'm pretty careful with it, but, uh, yeah, it's just, just too bad. And then I also noticed that like, there's a screw head that, uh, in, in videos I watched online before we, we did open it up, I saw that people were using it to adjust that tension screw. And when we opened it up, that screw was just broken. Like it doesn't even have a top. And that was also disappointing because that's one of the screws that people would say, Oh, you can adjust this or whatever. And that can't be adjusted on mine because the screw is just broken. Like it just, mm-hmm. you know, and there, there's no way I could have broken that or we could have broken it because we just took the plastic off and looked and there it was, it was broken, like right off the top. So I didn't even know what that really would look like. So that, that again was a little disappointing. And it had a big red mark inside too. Almost made me think maybe this was meant for not, not going, you know, you know, out for sale or something because maybe it was like a test unit had a big red mark inside. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of weird. Um, yeah. You know, that, that strip screw was disappointing. And then, uh, you know, we, we went further into it and, um, you know, I think we discovered the root of the problem, which was, uh, like the, um, oh geez, the, uh, the azimuth, uh, axis yeah. looked like it was maybe just like not centered or maybe even bent. Like, cause as we rotated that, that gear, um, and it made a full rotation, you could see that there's a little bit of a wobble, meaning, you know, it just wasn't quite centered. Um, now that could have also just been maybe like the, the bearing or the washer in there, but, uh, it, yeah. it seemed like where, when it would look a little off kilter, you would also feel more friction on that axis wheel. Like it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't spinning as freely. And I think probably what is happening is when it's slewing past that, that point of friction, the motor is, you know, driving a little harder so it can drive through that no problem. But when it's just tracking, you know, the motor is not using a lot of power. And I think that little bit of friction is what's causing that clicking noise. Cause it's kind of binding yeah. against the friction. 
And yeah. um, so we tried to get at that and there's uh, some grub screws that need a, a hex wrench or an Allen wrench. And um, it just stripped mine. Like I wasn't able to free it up. Now it's possible too, that mine was already partially stripped because I've used it before on other things. So, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe some of the edges were gone, but we were unable to take it apart. So we probably got about 80 or 90% of the way through that mount. And then that was it. We had to stop because the, the tool was broken. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were trying to be careful too. Like, you know, we're, you know, you're a fairly careful person and as am I. So if, if anything became too resistant or whatever, and, um, you know, and like you said, we couldn't, you know, we, we just couldn't get any further in a way that we felt was safe, you know, and, uh, and so we called it and put it back, but again, like it is working better, but, you know, before I had a little bit of play in that azimuth, um, but now it seems like there's, there's more, but there's less of hmm. this binding, um, going on. So I think just, just simply like when we opened it up and we could see those chunks of metal, um, just by simply removing those, I'm guessing that, that at least one of those, or maybe all of them were, uh, were at least, uh, in part causing some of, some of whatever I was experiencing because it definitely is better. And we, we didn't take it apart. Really. We just took, um, we just took a look at the gear and, and, and remove these and then, then put the gear back in and that was it. So, um, we didn't really do anything, anything too major there. We didn't adjust anything. So, um, I don't, I don't know how other than just removing those, those metal, um, chunks would, uh, would have done anything at all, you know? So anyway, it's kind of disappointing, but I'm going to get in touch with Skywatcher and, uh, and see what they're, what they're able to do. I've heard good things about them and, uh, certainly, um, I'm a fan. I like the Skywatcher, uh, gear and I really like this mount. I was just disappointed at, uh, I guess like the quality control, maybe, maybe this one, like I said, it has a big red mark inside. So I'm going to mention that like in all the other mounts, like I saw four or five of these taken apart online, nobody had a giant red mark like this one does. And maybe, maybe it just was marked not for sale and somehow it got <laughs> into, uh, and that can happen. Right. So I can mm -hmm. understand, that. you know, if that's, if that's what happened, uh, these sort of things happen. It's a big company and, and they are producing lots of great gear. And, uh, and maybe that, maybe that's all that happened with it. And they'll, I don't know, I don't know what they'll do because I think the warranty on it is a year and, and it's just unfortunate that I'm like literally outside beat year by, by a day when, when this occurred. So yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, good luck with that. Hopefully they do something for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the business of, uh, doing the, uh, the return if I'm, I'm guessing it'll, it'll have to go back. Um, or if, or if they won't take it back, then I don't know, I'll see if I can find someone to, uh, to actually do a proper strip down of it. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it, it's too bad, but yeah. Um, that we heard from Phil, he's, he sent us a, a detailed review of his, uh, eight inch, uh, traditional dog by Stella Lira. I think he, I asked him to send us a short review of it and, I think just because um, of my my work schedule and then my transit times and that sort of thing, I didn't see that until until this morning. So maybe we can chat on that uh, next week. And then I saw you sent me uh, a note from another a new listener, another listener, and they had mentioned the sound quality. So I should address that a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, so that's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and and the reason is is that. I'm, uh, at my, I'm, I'm recording these, um, past, uh, probably a dozen or more episodes at my remote site. And probably today is the best connection we've had since I've been doing this because 
Um, now people in that general area aren't coming out here as much and probably I'm getting better connection or maybe the weather is better today or something. Um, but typically I have things set up like I'm in like a little bit of a home studio and uh, that gives really good sound quality. Um, but while I'm out here, I'm just sitting at my kitchen table um, plugged into my cell phone for internet. Um, but in, in the future, like next year, um, my plan is to actually get proper internet out here. So I'm not just on my hotspot um, and that the cell service out here, there's, it's not, uh, it's not in a, in an area that has uh, towers visible. So I'm in a bit of a, like on a bit of a hill near a valley and there, there's a lot of trees. And I also have a lot of metal in my, uh, in my location here. And I think that does interfere with, with the cell service. So um, probably in three weeks, I'll be recording back in my usual spot. And so that should be better uh, for that bit of it anyway. So people can look forward to that. And then next year, I'll probably, probably what, Probably what I should have done is I should have just brought the the mic and that sort of thing out here, but that's a lot to bring. And I don't really have power um, properly here. So I'm just on battery as well. Like I don't have my computer plugged in. Um, so I'm kind of taxing things a bit and, uh, and I, and I don't have internet. I'm just using, using my hotspot and that's it. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah. So that's that business. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really all I, I have to say about observing this week. It's, it's sort of been a bit of a, a bit of a dog's breakfast with the, you know, between the mount and the weather and everything like that. But, uh, you know, I was thinking if I have to send this back, I'll just use one of my other mounts. Like I've just been kind of using it to test it a little bit, but now I think I've gotten to the end of that. And, uh, I think it'll have to be sent back or sent somewhere to, to get fixed. Cause there's nothing else like these Skywatcher easy GTI. So, you know, I think they've done an awesome job at designing it. I think that when it works, it works amazing. You can use it with uh, an app, so you don't need a hand controller. And what's cool about it is that you can turn it on and hit tracking, and then it just tracks. And that is wicked. I don't know that there's much else out there that does that for really um, a few hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, yeah. That- really really nice and it can take a decent load i think whatever it is up to 12 or so um, pounds or five kilograms or something like that but it's it's really really decent and then uh yeah i mean just it's just unfortunate that that this one that i had just seemed to have some sort of um quality control issue unfortunately but it's weird that it didn't really pop up it was fine for like a year and i think you know with with those um those chunks in there it, it just was just a matter of time before maybe interfere. So anyway, yeah. we'll see, we'll see what happens there. And uh, yeah, didn't know if you had anything else left to uh, that. Yeah. Just, just on the, the tail end of this mount discussion, one, one conversation that you and I had Monday night was, was the fact that this is a rare mount that, you know, it's a nice alt as mount that can be manually moved quite easily, but then also just track when you find the object that you want, which is almost like the perfect world for you and I, and how we observe, you know, that we, you know, we, we don't use go to, but sometimes it is nice to have the tracking Yeah, and, um, you know, some of the best mounts that are available for refractors are sort of like just made by people in a garage, you know, like the disc mount mounts, you know, yeah. that's kind of how that started, uh, universal astronomics. That's how that one was. Um, I think even like half hitch and some of these other mounts that, you know, d- uh, desert is a desert sky astro, I yeah. think as well. Yeah. 
So, you know, the reason I'm saying this is if somebody has a lathe and, you know, ability to make things, I think there's a market for one of these mounts. Like if somebody would put together an Altaz mount uh, that could, you know, had clutches, so it could easily be just, you know, moved across, like used manually. But then when you find your object, it just tracks. Um, you know, I would definitely pay a good price for something like that. So, um, you know, again, if there's somebody out there with uh, the means to do so, you might have a little side business. Cause I think there would definitely be some demand for a mount like that. Yeah. Or, or somebody that, uh, that would like hyper tune these, you know, mm-hmm, like considering mm-hmm. that, uh, I think Skywatcher has done an excellent job of the design. Like, honestly, I don't think there's much I would change about it. There's like some small things that are a bit futzy, but you kind of get used to it pretty quick. Like I wasn't going to use the app. Um, because I just, I bought a hand controller right out of the gate because I thought using an app wouldn't be that, that uh, good for me and how I observe, but it turned out that, uh, I use them about equally. Um, and the thing with the, the app is, is that it is so well designed and, and has that ability of the point track, um, that between the, the software and the hardware of the mount, I think they've done a, a truly excellent job. Um, but like I said, um, you know, this, this Zemeth tracking is, uh, it, it, it's a bit of a problem there um, because I think there's some, some quality challenges and it's too bad. Like that designer, whoever designed it did an excellent job. Software is awesome. Um, the mount is really light for what it's capable of doing. And, and it works uh, very, very well, like in practice. And it works with both an app and a hand controller. Um, not, and it's, and it's, I think, well-priced. But for, for the lack of, you know, someone taking an extra five minutes when they're building it, it's just unfortunate, you know, they're all kind of, or, you know, sort of get a limited lifespan because of that. And that's just, that's just a shame really. Mm-hmm, for sure. Anyway, that, that's kind of my bits on it, but we'll see what happens. We'll see what yeah. happens. Sounds right. good. Okay. We will thank everybody for listening and we'll talk to you soon, Shane. Thanks. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.